0: I once stood in the hallway of a mall for more than 20 minutes, just staring. Feet never moved, stood in the same place for 20 minutes, simply staring. This was back circa 1991. For you young people, that was a different millennium. And my high school choir was was performing at different churches and Christian schools in the mid-Atlantic region. I remember we even stopped at a, at a church up here in Hershey. We were on a break from our tour and we stopped at a local mall where I was absolutely mem- mesmerized by a display in the hallway. I think it was probably my introduction to Magic Eye. You know, those amazing pieces of artwork that hide a picture behind a A maze of wild colors and other chaotic designs. All my friends came by and they looked at it and they were like, yeah, it's right there. It's so easy to see. And I was like, well, for those of us who actually have a brain, it's not that easy. Stupid magic eye. I still can't do those things. Sometimes... Life can be that way, can't it? How can we be so close, yet so far away? How can we not see what's right in front of us? That's the question that confronts us in our text this morning. Would you please turn your copy of the Scriptures to Romans chapter 9? It's the sixth book of the Christian New Testament. We're finishing up Romans 9 today as we work our way through the book of Romans that outlines for us the undeserved, the unmatched, and the unstoppable gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul uses chapters 9, 10, and 11 to give to us a defense of the gospel. And we read in chapters 9 through 11 about a tension between God's sovereignty and God's justice. We read about the promise to the nation of Israel and about God's plan for the gospel to go not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. We've spent much time in chapter 9 considering, without apology, the sovereignty of God in the salvation of man. And all that continues to stand. But Paul shifts now in verse, in verse 30 of chapter 9, and probably it could have been the chapter break there. Remember, the chapter and verse breaks aren't inspired. And we could have, it's kind of a new thought that carries us into chapter number 10. We'll consider the righteousness of God and the faith of humanity and how it all falls under the sovereign hand of God. Would you please follow along as I read from Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They, Israel, have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in in him will not be put to shame. One more time, verse 30. What shall we say then? that Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, God's special people, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. If you are not yet a Christian, these verses tell you the way to God. If you already are a Christian, these verses remind you of the glorious hope of God's righteousness and call you to respond with holy living because of or out of your gratitude In being clothed with God's righteousness. Attempts at producing our own righteousness are completely natural. But they are also completely inadequate. Paul wants us to understand that we can be so busy at being good that it's possible to walk right past Jesus. It's possible for all the wild colors and chaotic actions of religion to hide the message of faith in God's Son Jesus. You see, humanly generated righteousness is hollow and insufficient. But the righteousness that comes through faith in the but true righteousness comes through faith in the one who is righteousness. So let's consider for a few minutes this morning. The righteousness of God. The first thing we note from this passage about God's righteousness is the universal need of possessing God's righteousness. We see this in verses 30 and 31. You'll remember that Paul is writing to the church that's located in Rome where there were many Gentiles, but there were also Jews who would be reading this letter. He addresses both groups in the final verses of chapter 9. That's everyone in the world. If you are not a Jew, you are a Gentile. The apostle, then, is is again making the case for the universal need of possessing God's righteousness. This is not new to chapter 9, is it? We read of it in chapter 1. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. For as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It's all through through chapters 3 and 4. What is this righteousness that Paul speaks of? God's righteousness is His perfection. It's forensic righteousness. It's talking about having a right standing before God. Well, why do we need God's righteousness? We need God's righteousness because God is perfectly pure. And God is perfectly holy. And and we must be that way. We must be holy. We must be righteous to be with God. So we need His righteousness. We don't have it naturally, do we? We have sin, naturally. We need God's righteousness in order to be with Him for all of eternity. Friend, you must have God's righteousness to live forever. You must possess a righteousness that is, does not originally belong to you. Nobody will see God. Nobody will be reconciled to their Creator apart from being clothed with that Creator's righteousness. It's true For every single human being. Humanly generated righteousness is hollow. It's insufficient. But true righteousness comes through faith in the one who is righteousness. Paul teaches us about the universal need of possessing God's righteousness. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on and he tells us about the common misunderstanding about possessing God's righteousness. The Gentiles were pretty much clueless about the history of God's redemptive plan. They were oblivious to the Old Testament sacrificial system and the promised Messiah. And Paul tells us, and yet, many Gentiles did. They were recipients of God's righteousness. Gentiles were not pursuing God's righteousness, but by God's grace, they found what they had not been looking for. Let's all be reminded this morning, that none of us seek after God. None of us are righteous on our own. None of us does good. None of us naturally seeks God. None of us were looking for redemption. Rather, God came and got us. Friends, that is grace. God found us in our weakness. God found us when we were looking away from him. But the Jews thought they were looking to him. The Jews were pursuing a righteousness. They had a whole system to pursue righteousness via the law of God. The Jews were were clearly familiar with the ways of God. They were the people of God. They had the law. They had been been designed uh, as as, as God's uh, means for them. They had been designated as God's special people. They had the the promises of God. In in the New Testament, there's the Pharisees and the Sadducees who had immersed themselves into the Old Testament teachings, and they followed to the letter of the law. The Jews had the sacrificial system, the tabernacle, the temple. The law had, had aimed at leading them to Christ. The law pointed ahead to the perfect law keeper. It wasn't the law that was going to provide righteousness. It was who the law pointed to that could provide the necessary righteousness. You see, the law wasn't the problem. The problem was pursuing righteousness by the law instead of by faith in the law keeper. Very simply stated, the common misunderstanding is that some people think that they can obtain God's righteousness through their good works. And ironically, it's often the people who are the closest, the most familiar with the ways of God, who have this misunderstanding. What do we read in John's Gospel, the first chapter? He came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. The Jews saw Jesus heal the lame. They saw him give sight to the blind. They saw him offer forgiveness of sins. They had been told that someone like this was coming. And they watched him live out his, his earthly ministry, going about his father's business for three years on the earth. And yet they fell, they stumbled over the Messiah because they could not fathom receiving God's favor apart from their own righteousness. Rather, they kept focusing on the law. They kept their focus on seeking to find righteousness through their works. They missed their substitute, lawkeeper, because they were feverishly trying to keep the law. Why did they stumble past Christ? Because faith in Jesus required that they lay down self-righteousness and accept Christ's righteousness. Possessing God's righteousness requires that we humble ourselves, that we acknowledge that we aren't good enough. And we have trouble doing that, don't we? We don't like to acknowledge our need. We don't like to acknowledge our dependency upon another. I'm generally burdened for those of us who live here in the West. We have this attitude of invincibility. We are spoiled people. And we set up our lives to really not depend too much on other people at all. So we don't do well at communicating to the lost that there is an absolute need to depend on a Savior. We have Bibles everywhere. We have gospel-preaching churches filling our cities. We have the full message of Jesus all around us. Did you know that there are some 3.2 billion people on our planet today that have never heard the name of Jesus Christ? And yet our nation is so familiar with Christ's name that people regularly use it in blasphemous ways. And what about Lancaster County? We have hundreds of gospel-preaching churches in our county alone. We We have churches all over Lanco who refrain from drunkenness, people who refrain from sexual immorality, from theft, who have clean mouths. They refrain from cursing. We have plain people communities that set the bar, set the standard really high for loving our neighbor, for forgiving those who have wronged them and their own religious dedication. Harvest Bible Church, we are made up of people that prioritize gathering almost every Lord's Day. And we literally send thousands of dollars to the mission field every year to help people, to help our partners spread the good news of Jesus we memorize God's word. We live morally conservative lives. And we verbally declare the God of the Bible. I think of my own, my own testimony. I was born on a Sunday afternoon. And, I was on, and the next Sunday afternoon, I was taken to Faith Baptist Church of Toulon, Illinois. And I've been attending ever since, pretty much um, every Sunday. I can quote scripture. I've had one wife for 25 years. And dozens of you can give very similar testimonies. Not only that, but there are hundreds of good intentions that never make it out of our creative minds and imaginations into reality. I have lots of ideas for harvest that are still in the not yet phase. Israel was doing all of their works with good intentions. It was all the law, their pursuit of God, their, their, their practices, their traditions, their, 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 all they their carrying out these, of these religious uh, practices, it was all within the framework of following God. Paul wants us to understand that moral behavior, that good intentions, that Christian heritage, that good works of religiosity are not enough. And none of those, or a combination of those, is sufficient to obtain the righteousness of God. Thousands upon thousands of Jews were in close proximity, but did not, in fact, obtain the righteousness of God because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Likewise, there are thousands upon thousands of people in our world today. There are scores of people in Lancaster County that have not obtained the righteousness of God because they are not pursuing it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They are stumbling over the stumbling stone. Is that you? Are you in close proximity to God, but not actually parts of God's family? Are you stumbling over the stumbling stone? The gospel of Jesus teaches us that God's children uh, actually receive what we never sought. We never went looking for it. The Jews' misunderstanding was stumbling over the concept that God's righteousness must come as a gift through Christ. God demands a response of faith. The Jews pursued righteousness by works. The Gentiles didn't pursue righteousness, but they had faith. God's sovereign hand that we've talked much of in recent weeks, God's sovereign hand and man's simple faith are both clearly taught within the pages of Scripture. God does not save a person who does not believe in Jesus. And a person cannot save himself by the act of his own will. It's a both-and situation. Self-righteousness is a great obstacle to salvation. If someone is convinced that they can please God, they will see no need to be saved. Brothers and sisters of harvest, when we were saved, we acknowledged that we desperately were in need of God. We acknowledged that at salvation. But do you ever post-salvation, are you ever tempted to live like you actually Don't still need God? Do you catch yourself not being dependent upon the one who saved you? Do you catch yourself arrogantly thinking, Oh, I can handle this this issue on my own, this relationship, this sin problem on my own? Friends, we came to God by faith in dependence upon Jesus. We remain in dependence upon his son Jesus by faith. There is a universal need of possessing God's righteousness. There is a common misunderstanding about possessing God's righteousness. This passage also points us to the glorious hope of possessing God's righteousness. Paul quotes in the end of chapter 9 from the prophet Isaiah. Actually, it's a combination of two different chapters from the book of Isaiah. And as Isaiah had predicted, Jesus came and he was the stone that so many had stumbled over. But did you hear the word of hope from the apostle? Paul says, anyone who believes in that rock of offense will not be put to shame. Anyone. Belief is not limited to the Jews. Anyone who believes in Jesus' death on their behalf. Anyone who trusts that Jesus is the true and the only way to God. Anyone who repents of self-righteousness and instead depends on God's righteousness, anyone that acknowledges Jesus is the way to God will not be put to shame. That is the glorious hope of the gospel of Jesus. The hope is not for Jews only. The hope is not only for, for people of a, a certain political party. The hope is not only for a certain gender or a certain race or certain religious practice. The hope is not for those who can somehow get their act together and start living right. The hope is for anyone who believes in the rock of offense, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, God is saving individuals from all people groups. This should give us confidence as we move forward in evangelizing our own community. Not only should it give us confidence in our evangelization, it should give us a bigger heart for, for giving. Let's flood the summer missions offering. It should give us more passion for sending gospel workers. Let's partner intentionally and deeply with our missionaries. It should give us greater compassion for the 3.2 billion who have yet to hear, yet even to hear the name of Jesus. The glorious hope is available to anyone who believes in Jesus. But there is even more hope. Every person who believes in Jesus, the end of verse 33 says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. I had to go looking a little bit in my study, what does this really mean, that they will not be put to shame? In many translations, it's very similar to this. Ashamed or put to shame. But I think the NASB really captures for us a little bit better what, it, what it's talking about. It's talking about those, anybody, who, uh, whoever is, believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. It's talking about they will not be dissatisfied. They will not be disappointed if they're looking by faith to Jesus. You see, when I was standing in the mall, missing the image behind all of those designs, I finally walked away. A failure. Disappointed and dissatisfied. I didn't have the sense of fulfillment of seeing the helicopter behind the, the designs or whatever it was. I left with a level of disappointment or I was ashamed. I was, I, I, I was put to shame. This is true for any who do not see Jesus. But every person who believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. This means that Christians will not be dissatisfied. We will not experience disappointments. Whoever believes in this rock of offense will experience full satisfaction, a full quenching of our thirst, a full fulfillment in eternity. If you don't believe in this rock of offense, you will always be striving and never attaining. You will have no peace. You will have will have no quenching of your thirst. You will have no sanctuary in your hour of trial and of crisis and of need. You see, the glorious hope of God's righteousness is found in a person. It's found in Jesus Christ. Jesus came. We thought about that this morning as we came to the table. He, he lived with us and then he died on a cross for sins that were not his. He rose again three days later after he had made a full atonement for our sin. He had victory over death. He had complete appeasement of God the Father for the sins of God's children. Friends, there is a rock of offense and his name is Jesus. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in Him we might be made, we might have the righteousness of God. Our hope is not built on how good we can be. Our hope is not built on whether or not we go to church a certain amount of times a year. Our hope is not built on anything within us. Our hope is is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Our hope is in the solid rock, Jesus Christ. Our hope is in the atonement that Christ has provided for our sins. Our hope is in the perfection of Jesus, the righteous one. Our hope is in the payment for our sins that Christ made on the cross. Our hope is in the miraculous resurrection of Jesus Christ three days later when his heart again began to beat and the blood started racing through his veins. Our hope is in the promise that when He comes at the sound of the trumpet, we will be found in Him, dressed in His righteousness alone. We will be faultless at that point to stand before the throne of God. Our hope is not in our behavior. Our hope is not in our morals. Our hope is not in our Christian heritage or our good works. None of that gives us hope because all of that is dependent upon us. Make no mistake about it. Our hope is Jesus. He is the one that we lean on now and forevermore. This is the hope that we are called to communicate to our world. This is the hope that we have when life is peachy. And this is the hope that we have when trials come into our life. This is the hope that we possess in the throes of depression. This is the hope that we look to in the face of our own mortality. This is the hope that we will have when on that great day we stand before God as our judge and we are in need of righteousness that we don't naturally have. Our hope on that day is in Christ. When Christians stand before God, we will not point to the vileness of the attempts at our our own righteousness. We will simply bend our knee before the one who is righteousness. And we will not be put to shame. We will not be disappointed. We will not be dissatisfied because the one who is the living water and the bread of life has fully satisfied all of our needs. We will not be put to shame on that great day because all of our hope is outside of us. All of our hope is invincible. All of our hope is realistic because all of our hope is in Jesus. The Bible doesn't teach if I work hard enough, I'll see God. The Bible doesn't teach if God, if, if, if God is the one that saves us, then I don't need to respond to it with faith. The Bible teaches look away from self and look to Jesus in faith. John's gospel, the next verse from what I read earlier, he says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the sons of God. We can agree with the psalmist. From the end of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to a rock that is higher than I. Don't stumble over the stumbling stone, look to the solid rock. Instead, let's bow our heads and close our eyes.